This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com. Chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. Let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil ways and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had issued. He has said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. There's a lot that's going on here, and just picking out some some things and some themes that really um, stand out that I feel is important for us. One of the the first things that, that I feel is important is, The gospel is the true agent of social reform. The gospel. Different people can rally around different things, right? Trying to get reform and trying to see things change, but the gospel. The gospel is the true agent of social reform. It's the gospel. You see, the people of God have a missional identity with a prophetic voice. And the, the purpose of this, this, this prophetic voice is, is, to, is to echo the voice of God so that people can hear the voice of God speaking through his people. They hear what, 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 what God is saying because the people of God are echoing his voice in, in the midst of culture. It's to, it's to mirror the heart of God. So people know how God feels about things, the things that break his heart because they see the hearts of his people broken, the things that gives them great joy because they see that joy on the faces of his people is to mirror his heart. 
proclaim his word. To proclaim his word even to people who do not claim that they are, quote unquote, of the faith. You get here in Jonah chapter 3, and it continues to go on, and God tells Jonah, go into that great city and proclaim my word. Tell them what I tell you to say. Go into that great city and proclaim my word. And he does it, and the response to this proclaimed word led to national social reform all over the place. And it started with the everyday people like, like you and me. The everyday people, they were hearing the word of God and they were responding. They was hearing what Jonah was crying out. And they was like, let us fast and, 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 and let us do this. And, and, and they started to, to move. The reason why I slow down and I point out the magnitude of this, this, this social reform that happened is because it says here, it says, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. It encompassed all social categories. Regardless of where you found yourself at on the spectrum, everybody was encompassed inside of this, this fasting, this, this putting on of sackcloth. Everywhere. It says that Nineveh was, 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 was a three-day journey. And Jonah only went one day, one day's length. And, and, and even though the, the, it's talking about Nineveh, it, it, it's more broadly talking about Assyria as they're talking about this. And, and there's this three-day journey to cover the breadth of it, but Jonah only goes in about one day's length. He only goes a third of the journey. But even though he only goes a third of the journey, the word of God travels. It continues to travel. People continue to, to like, what? Well, we heard this. And, they, and it continues to travel and travel. And the word is, is going past social barriers. And, 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 and what the people are doing is being heard throughout. And eventually it gets to the king. And he hears. He hears about this, this prophet from this little place called Nineveh that they used to punk all the time. He's in town, and he said, what? And the king agrees. He agrees with it, submits to it, and then he uses his position of privilege and power to make sure that even Joe, Jonah only went one-third of the way. The king uses his position and power to make sure that the other two-thirds of the nation would also hear the word of God and respond accordingly. Oh, when I say that the gospel is the true essence here, you get to verse 7, you see that the king, king makes this a national proclamation. He uses his position and makes a national proclamation. This is how we're going to do this. 
And he uses power and makes an official decree. Y'all going to do this. We're all going to be responding here. And as he lays it out, the elements of, of this response was humility. Humble yourselves. Repent. He talks about sackcloth and ashes. That's humility. And, and for them to call on God, and I love it, it points out, he doesn't just say call on God. He says call on God mightily. Call out to him. Cry out to him mightily. And he says, and turn from your evil ways. Now, even as he says, turn from your evil ways, I I, I love it when you look at 3 and 8. Here's the context. He says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. You see, when we started off in the book of Jonah, we gave some context to, to how Nineveh was. How Nineveh was, was known for their violence. Assyria was known for their violence towards other nations and how they conquered people. And they had these graphic displays of violence. But you see, you can't be so violent and wicked outwardly that it doesn't affect who you are inwardly. Inwardly, they was, as a matter of fact, it was probably flowing out from who they were inwardly. So when he says the violence that is in their hands, they're saying the violence currently in your hands towards your neighbor, towards your brother, towards your sister. Stop all that mess too. Turn away from the evilness that we have as a nation. Turn away from the evilness that we have individually. The violence that's in your hands right now. This is, these are the elements of true social reform. It, it unites all social demographics together in a response to God. Not just responding to the issue. The issue is there, but there's a greater thing that's being responded to, and that's to God. And it's walked out in humility that there is a turning away from evil that's presently in hand. So it's the gospel. The gospel is, is the true agent of social reform. It's the true thing that actually starts to change people. It wasn't the, the, the elegance of his words. It wasn't, man, he, he just preached such an eloquent message and, 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 and he, he hit all the right points. It wasn't that. Man, it, right here it said it was only a few words. Some people feel that, 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 that well, this is just more of an overall statement of what he talked about. But either way, it was the power of the word of God that led to the change. Even historically, the movements, like for us, historically in culture, the movements of social reform that have made the biggest impacts were always the one that was centered around the gospel. 
Always the one that was responding to the word of God saying, this is what the word says. This is what God calls for. And and there was a a challenge and there was a movement. Those were the ones that caused massive laws to change that affect the country. You see the depths of how the gospel goes in and how the word of God is, is doing this shaping and doing this changing. And it's, it's moving and it reaches the king. Now, now, when it reaches the king, look what, look what it says. It says, the word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself in sackcloth and sat in ashes. I want to make this part interactive for a really, really important reason. I want you to turn to your neighbor, and I want you to look your neighbor in the face. I don't want you to smile and laugh. I want you to look him in the eyes. Now, let's do that. Turn to your neighbor, look him in the eyes with a serious look, and say, get off your throne. Turn to your other neighbor. Some, some of y'all, are, they don't got a neighbor on either side. Like, find somebody. And say, get off your throne. Listen, I really intentionally wanted to do that, right? Because we got to be able to hear the voice of God speaking through the people that are closest to us. The people that sit right next to us. That can call us out, that can check us and say, get off your throne. We need to be able to do that. We need to be able to look into the eyes of my brother and sister, regardless of, of how they look. If they're older than you, younger than you, then whatever it is, my, it's my son, it's my daughter, whatever it is, and hear God speak to you. You see, repentance starts with getting off your throne. This is where it starts at. The king of Assyria was, was, was rightfully king. He was entitled to the throne. He didn't force his way on there. He was rightfully king. He was entitled to the throne. And people were usually humbling themselves to him. And now he is humbling himself and getting off the throne that he was rightfully entitled to. See, many of us have been sitting on a throne of entitlement. Whether it's perceived entitlement, like, uh, I, I feel like I'm entitled to this. You're not really entitled to it, but you feel like you are entitled to it, and you're sitting on it like a throne. Or whether you are rightfully entitled to it, but we're sitting on it, and this throne of entitlement becomes a seat of pride. 
This is why the first step to repentance is getting off your throne, surrendering surrendering what you feel entitled to. I get it. You worked hard to get it. You went to school for a long time. You did this and you did that. You earned it. I deserve this. I get it. I get it. Surrender your entitlement to God. This is where repentance starts at. Get off your throne. But he doesn't just get off his throne. He says, and he takes off his robe. You see, the robe was a symbol of the king's exalted position. His position that was exalted above others. And the reality of it is that many of us are wearing symbol Similar robes around our hearts. Many of us wear these these symbol robes that's covering our hearts that, that somewhere on the inside tells you I'm a little bit higher than him. I'm a little bit higher than her. For, for some reason, I, I, I feel like I'm, I'm a little bit better so I can look down on. I don't really have to listen to what you're saying. I could treat you a kind of a way because inside of my heart, my heart is cloaked with this robe that, that, that makes me feel just a little bit more exalted than you. And it impacts how I repent to you. It impacts every single thing because there's a little bit of me that, that, that feels like this inside of my heart. I'm a, a little bit more exalted. But here's the king. No throne. No robe. And it said that the word went out from the greatest of them to the least of them, and now the greatest of them inside of the country was treating himself as no different than the least of them. No different. They're in sackcloth and ashes. I'm in sackcloth and ashes. I'm off my throne. My robe is off. He puts off his throne and his robe, and he puts on sackcloth and ashes. makes me, me, me think of this put off and put on language that we see inside the New Testament. When we talk about put off and put on, you see repentance is more than just words said. We have to intentionally, intentionally, listen, hear me, we have to intentionally put off the things inside of our life that exalt the pride. You know your heart. You know your heart, at least some of it. You know some of these things that you know, like, yo, that exalts my pride. And we have to intentionally put it off. And then we have to intentionally put on things that drives me to humility. Unless I'm intentional with it, I won't do it. So we could... We can learn so much from how the, the, the king responds. Repentance starts with getting off your throne. Another thing that stands out as we, we are taking this journey 
through the, the, the book of Jonah, where we're here in, in chapter 3, is that God often uses culture to confront and challenge the church. Yeah, God often uses the culture, the, the unsaid, rebellious, unrepentant people to confront and challenge the church. You just have to have an ear to hear his voice. But he often does it. You see, the king of Assyria was by no means a worshiper of the God of Israel. They, they, they didn't walk through 40 years in the wilderness together. They wasn't rescued from, from, from Egypt together. He didn't know about the commandments and the covenants. He didn't know those things. He didn't have a relationship with God. But yet still, he called this nationwide fast. Everybody were all fasting. Yet still, he calls this nationwide repenting and turning from, from the wicked ways. Yet still, there was this nationwide calling to call on God in that, that mightily. Even though he didn't have a relationship with God, even though he didn't know him, yet still, everybody he's involved inside of this, the king is calling him to do, is calling everyone to do the thing, and, and he says this, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Who knows? He has all of this done. He involves the entire nation on a who knows? Maybe this will work. Y'all all doing it. This is interesting. It made me think about when we was in chapter 1 and, and, and Jonah was fleeing. And Jonah found himself again with some Gentiles, some people that didn't have a relationship with God. And they was on a boat and the storm was going crazy. And they, and they was trying to call on their gods. Nothing was working. And then in Jonah 1 and 6, Jonah... You see the captain, it says, so the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Though, 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 though neither the, the Ninevites nor the mariners knew God, they were willing to go through diverse measures just in case he was sovereign and merciful. They was willing to do diverse changes just in case he was good. They was willing to submit to God and call out to God, even pass a bill to structure social reform on a national level just in case he was sovereign and merciful, though they had no idea whether or not he was. But they was willing to go through all of that, not knowing. Unlike Jonah, unlike Jonah who, who actually knew of things like Jeremiah 18, verses 7 and 10, Jonah knew this right here, where it said, 
If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. This Jonah knew, but they didn't. And yet still, here they are, like, just in case, who knows? Maybe, perhaps, but let's do it. They lack the, the confidence that comes from that relational equity with God. But it was willing to try just in case he was good. Jonah, Jonah, on the other hand, he knew that God was sovereign. He knew that God was good. This was part of his problem. And yet intentionally rebelled against him. He knew that God was good and sovereign and yet intentionally did the exact opposite of what he said and went the exact other direction. Uh, he, he knew that God was good and sovereign but would refuse to call on God until he had no other options. You see... God compares a culture of people who have no relationship with him but quickly submit to him because maybe he's good. Maybe he'll rescue to Jonah who represents the people of God, a people with a covenant relationship with him that know that he's good, know he's a redeemer, and still struggle so hard to submit to him. And just like that, God uses culture to confront and challenge the church. Man, we should be the first ones to submit because we know him. We have a relationship with him. We know he's good. We're going to be the first ones to, to repent. We're going to be the first ones to, to stand up for the weak. We're going to be the first ones to, to call out what's broken, the first ones to herald what is good in creation because we specifically have a covenant relationship with the God of all of creation. So we should be the first ones, but yet we struggle so hard to submit to him. And because of that, we, we fail to, to let God define our mission or identity. Instead, we, we try to do mission on our own terms. Like, here's what will work best for me, and here's what I'm going to do it like this, and I'm going to do it like that. I'm on mission. And we refuse to be his voice, echoing his words in culture, even if it leads to an uncomfortable place, uncomfortable spaces. We, we try to step out of doing that, and then what it does is it leaves a void. That the world tries to fill. And when the world tries to fill that void, their idolatry gets exposed. Because we're called to do it. And we look from the outside and we either ignore the idolatry and just link up or confront the idolatry. Without dealing with the fact that the world is trying to fill a void left by the disobedience of the church.
I'm not going to stay long today because I just feel like this is where the Lord is leading to with this. And this is what he's talking about. You see, in chapter 1, we encounter Jonah, who represents the church, running from God. And we closed out chapter 1, just taking this. Here's the main thing that we want to take away is stop running. Then in chapter 2, we, we find Jonah backed up against the wall. He ran till he could not run no more. He's stuck inside of the belly of a fish. There, finally, where he can't do anything else, he starts praying. And we hear God saying to the church, start praying. We're in a relationship, ain't we? Start praying. Then we, we zoomed into chapter 2, verse 9, when, with Jonah in the belly of this fish. Finally submits and he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. And we walked away last week with submit to God. Stop running. Start praying. Submit to God. And this week we're saying, be obedient. Stop running. Start praying. Submit to God and be obedient. You see, many times we wrestle with our obedience because we don't feel it's authentic. I don't feel my obedience or think that I don't, I don't really want to do it. So should I do it? If I do it, then I don't really want to do it. Is, I mean, is it not, it's not really worship, is it then? So probably I shouldn't do it. How can inauthentic obedience be genuine worship? It's not really authentic. I don't really want to do it. I just, I force myself to. And I think, I think we're confusing authentic obedience with joyful obedience. I think that's what we're doing. We're confusing authentic obedience with joyful obedience. We're saying, since it's not joyful obedience, it's inauthentic. And I think that that's the wrong conclusion. So we end up comparing joyful obedience to authentic obedience. But really, we're trying to compare reluctant obedience to joyful obedience. You see, and we're, and, and we're trying to say, is it authentic then? You see, joyful obedience, when you think about the question, is this authentic worship? Am I really worshiping God? And I think, I don't feel joyful in doing this. I'm just doing it because I feel I'm supposed to, but I, I don't feel joyful in doing it. I don't know. See, joyful obedience is, is I'm, I'm excited to follow God. I get it. I get it. I see what you're doing, Lord. Oh, that's dope. Yes, let's go get it in. I'm, I'm down. Because I get it and I understand what you're doing, I choose to submit to you. 
And that's authentic worship. And that's joyful obedience. Reluctant obedience is like, I'm confused with what you're doing here, Lord. I don't think, I even like what you, as a matter of fact, I don't like what you're doing. I don't agree with what you're doing. I don't, I don't have no idea why you're doing it. I don't agree with it. I have to force myself to do it. But I choose to submit anyway. And that's authentic worship too. You see, sometimes we don't think like that. See, obedience is walking out your submission to God. Submit. And obedience is walking that submittance out. We assume in order for it to be authentic obedience, it has to always be joyful. When sometimes it's not joyful, it's just trusting. And that's authentic worship. That's authentic worship in and of itself. You have every reason to not do it, and you're doing it just off of trust. You see, and, and the band can come up now. You see, God used Jonah's reluctant obedience. Jonah wasn't joyfully obedient. Jonah did everything he can to not be obedient. And God, like, he catches him, puts him in a fish, and takes him to where he wants him to go and spits him up over there and then tells him again. And Jonah's like, yeah, sure. God uses Jonah's reluctant obedience to change a nation. Because it was about God. It's about his power. It's about he, what he was doing. Reluctant obedience is still authentic obedience because it's choosing to trust God over how you feel. And in that, it's worship. Yeah. God calls for joyful obedience. He does. But what he'll do is take your reluctant obedience and he'll mature it. See, he owns the process. And the process in and of itself draw us deeper into relationship with him. The process in and of itself helps us to know him, helps us to, to, to know how he feels and to feel his presence. He gets real close in the process, and, and, and we want to jump to something else real quick. And we, if we don't feel authentic, let me bail out. There's so many things that I used to do that, that began as reluctant obedience. It wasn't because I wanted to. It wasn't because I thought it made sense. Some of it I didn't agree with. But the closer I got to God, the more joy grew inside of my heart. The more he walked with me. It's like a marriage. It's like a marriage. I, me and my wife had the opportunity to celebrate 22 years of marriage just this week. Ah, oh, I love her. And there was so many things 
that I did that was um, reluctantly being obedient to God in the marriage. That God grew into a joyful worship because I was trusting him. And 22 years later, there's still things that I reluctantly do inside of the marriage. That God is growing to other levels of deep joy inside of him because it's about trusting him. See, God is calling us to be obedient. He's calling us to trust him with the process. In Romans, it says all the creation is waiting on the revealing of the sons of man. All the creation is waiting for the people of God to live into the fullness of their identity. And then you get a glimpse of it in Jonah 3. Men, women, children, every single social clash, even the animals fasting together and calling on God. Because God used one man's reluctant obedience. You see, a lot of times the problem is that we don't know all the elements to it. We don't know how this is going to turn out. We don't know how this is going to work, how this is going to make sense. We don't, we don't know, and, and, and God is trying to grow trust inside of us. We don't know. You see, some of the things that Jonah didn't know regarding Nineveh is that before Jonah went to Nineveh, Assyria had experienced a series of plagues. And by the time he gets over there with this word of what the Lord is saying, they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and sometimes we don't know what God is doing. Like I said, he owns the process. He owns the process. And, and I'm saying, you don't have to go to the Bible to find this. This is just in regular history books. During this time, Assyria went through a series of plagues. By the time Jonah comes, they're like, yes, Lord. And you don't know what God is doing to prep in advance as he calls you to be obedient. And sometimes he's using you to prep in advance for something he's going to do later. He just, just be obedient and trust him. This is what God is calling us to today, to trust the God that owns the process. And let me say, in this process, he finds joy in fellowshipping with you in the process. So as we go to the table this morning, as we go to communion this morning, we go, and I'm going to challenge you to contemplate, Lord, help me with my disobedience. Help me to trust you. Help me to stop trying to own the process and rest in the reality that you own the process. And you find joy in being close to me in the process. Let me say this, I'm going to get down. Not only did God know that Assyria had gone through a series of plagues before Jonah came. Like everything that's going on here is about 
God fellowshipping with Jonah wasn't primarily about Nineveh. Because after the book of Jonah is done, we get to the book of Nahum. Even though Nineveh repents, they turn back to their wickedness. And through the book of Nahum, they go through the whole story, and God eventually destroys Nineveh. He knew that that was going to happen, but it was about his fellowship with God. Next week, Pastor Aaron is going to talk about chapter 4, which turns from just Nineveh to Jonah talking to God. So that being said, he owns the process. He calls us to be obedient. As you come to the tables, contemplate that obedience. He's a good God. The tables are open. This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com.